This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Stay tuned to the end of the show where you'll hear this bonus survival story. And I, I remember falling backwards and seeing the, the skyline behind me. And it's, it's all mountains there. And just seeing these, these peaks flipped upside down because I was tumbling backwards and thinking just how strange it was. And that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. Here on Out Alive, we've brought you countless survival stories of people who escaped from harrowing backcountry scenarios. And while these accounts are usually told by the survivors themselves, a number of other crucial characters populate the stories we tell. I'm talking about the rescuers, the search and rescue heroes who put their own lives at risk in order to remove hikers like you and me from the face of danger. Today, we'd like to honor these people by bringing you a story from the perspective not of the rescued, but of the rescuer. In October of 2010, search and rescue volunteer Pam Bales embarked on a solo hike on New Hampshire's Mount Washington. And as her story proves, when it comes to helping others, search and rescue volunteers like Pam are never off the clock. Today's episode will answer the question, what goes through a rescuer's mind when they go into saving mode? What does it take to adapt when the details of an incident are fuzzy? when the circumstances are unknown, and when the stakes couldn't be higher. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. While peaks of the Northeast aren't known for their size, the White Mountains of New Hampshire are notorious for their rugged terrain and unpredictable conditions. At the range's crown sits Mount Washington, a mass of rocky ridgelines and steep ravines that's capped in snow eight months of the year. A collision of weather systems has given the 6,000-foot peak the nickname Home of the World's Worst Weather, and that's no hyperbole. The highest wind speed ever observed by a human, 231 miles per hour, was recorded atop Mount Washington in 1934. Over the past century, nearly 150 hikers have lost their lives to the mountain. And so, on October 17, 2010, it was the perfect venue for Pam Bales to put her skills to the test. I had been looking for a a window in the weather to do a training hike uh, for my search and rescue group. Uh, Get used to a heavier pack and find something steep and a little bit challenging. And finally, on the day I planned to go, 
it seemed like it would cooperate. So I headed up to the presidential range in New Hampshire, going up what's called the Jewel Trail. Having grown up in the White Mountains, Pam, now 70, turned often to the trails as her own kind of personal therapy. Nothing made her feel more alive. Pam has a background in nursing, so when one day an acquaintance suggested she join the local search and rescue, Pam thought it was a no-brainer. She went on to volunteer with the Pemigewasset search and rescue team for 13 years. On that day in 2010, she wanted a challenge. A nine-mile loop would take her up the Jewel Trail to Mount Washington Summit. Conditions at the base were warm. She started her hike with bare arms, but Pam knew that weather in the valley was never the same as up above treeline. She'd packed plenty of extra layers, hand warmers, and snow goggles. I was just feeling good because finally to get out there. I love the mountains, so that's where I go when I, I get any little space and time away from work. I could tell the cog railway that I could see from the trail on occasion was only going up as far as where a place called Jacob's Ladder, which is about halfway up Mount Washington. The clouds and fog were so thick, um, that's where they went up to and then back down. So I knew it would be a little sketchier up high. And as I progressed, you know, say up to the mile and a half, two mile mark, I started layering up some, got up to about the three mile mark and the winds were blowing some. I had plenty of gear. And that's why I wanted to put so much in just to have it. You never plan to use it, but you carry it. I know this trail so well that unless I can't see my hand in front of my face, I can maneuver it, but I will turn around in a flash if I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm not one of those that say I have to reach the summit. So I still continued on up, uh, still watching my time. It wasn't snowing, but it was blowing snow. As she ascended, the weather deteriorated. Clouds enshrouded the mountain and the gusts of wind pummeled the ridge. Pam was beginning to consider turning around and cutting her hike short when at the junction with the Gulfside Trail, she noticed something out of the ordinary, a set of footprints in the snow. She'd seen hardly another soul all day. Something about these prints didn't look right. They made her stop in her tracks. It just really grabbed, you know, the hairs in the back of your neck go up and going, oh, this doesn't seem right because the, the sneaker prints were flat and they didn't have the treads of hiking boots or shoes. It just brought to light what somebody was attempting. Pam knew those tracks in this weather indicated that someone was likely in trouble. The Gulfside Trail led to an exposed and difficult ridgeline where conditions would be worse. So she layered up and followed them. And I said, I'm just going to keep going, but you, you do that debate. So I went a little ways. I said, just let me see what direction, because since I hadn't met him, he hadn't turned around. And when I noticed his um, tracks took a left turn off the trail, 
they were heading towards what's called the Great Gulf. And I came around one of these boulders and here was a gentleman just sitting down, a little bit of snow on him, just looked out of it, obviously. Pam knew immediately that the situation was serious. The man was barely conscious. He didn't respond when she called out to him. Pam couldn't believe anyone would attempt to hike Mount Washington in these conditions so unprepared. And so I go up and talk to him. Hey, how you doing? And obviously no um, reply from him. So I literally take a step back, realizing what I just stumbled into of somebody really, really in trouble. With his clothing of just tennis shoes, um, very thin pants, light jacket. He just had a t-shirt on under that. The t-shirt was dry. The jacket was wet from the snow. His color was not the best. He was starting to get that porcelain look. You just knew his circulation was being a little bit compromised at that point. And I handle stress, as a lot of my fellow SAR mates do, with some humor. So I just looked at him and said a little out loud, but more to myself of, well, Ollie, this is another fine mess you've gotten yourself into. You just take a deep breath and now you go into rescue mode. So I got down and um, touched him. Uh, he really didn't respond very much. And then when I moved him a little bit more, he kind of looked at me with that glazed look. He needed help. I still had clothing gear in my pack. Uh, so I pulled some of that out because our chief has told us, never put yourself in a situation that you also become a victim. I was going to keep my clothing on and put my extra on him. I started taking his wet clothes off. I had a pair of insulated survivor pants on, slipped those on, dry shirt, one more jacket, hat, good gloves, socks, placed hand warmers in strategic places, which he didn't seem to mind, obviously. He was aware, you know, like, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because I can't help myself. So I kept talking to him, trying to get anything out of him. And he started to come around a little bit. And I introduced myself, told him, you know, I'm going to try and get something warm down you. My hot chocolate goes with me all the time. So I put some shot blocks in there, trying to get some electrolytes. As he started to revive, Pam asked the man his name, but he wouldn't tell her. Pam thought this was odd, but she had to call him something. She thought of her friend, John Hansen, whom she'd always gave her itinerary on days she'd ventured out solo. She settled on John. I put him in the bivy sack and I propped him up on me. Uh, I was kind of cradling him to try and get more warmth around him, explaining to him, we've got to get out of here because I could hear the wind really starting to pick up. And where we were in the boulder, it was coming around, almost like a mixing bowl effect. So it wasn't one direction. And I know when that happens, you do have to remove yourself from wherever you are. So I started explaining to John, we've got to get moving. It's only going to get worse. And begrudgingly or sluggishly, he started to move some, got him out of the bivy sack. 
kept all my clothes on him. I had micro spikes, obviously he did not. I had poles, so I gave him my poles. The snowpack was not icy crust, but it was hard because of the blowing snow. So I'm hoping, you know, with the decreased visibility that I could still find the trail. And thank goodness it wasn't snowing or it would have been obliterated as long as I can see a few rocks and some of the crumb holes. I know where I'm at on that trail. The visibility was getting worse, and Pam could no longer see her tracks from the way up. But she spotted the holes her trekking poles had made in the snow, which she followed like a trail of breadcrumbs. John was hypothermic and moved slowly. I'm here, she told him. I'm not going to leave you. He kept behind me. I did not have a rope. I kind of thought about that later. Well, if I had a rope and I tied us together, if he slipped, we might both go down. Uh, so that's just things that go through your mind on the trail is you're trying to uh, make the most of a mess you just stumbled into. So I started singing, let's take the edge off this. I don't know if he liked Elvis or Glen Campbell or Cher. Uh, Bee Gees, but I started humming and singing um, for whosoever benefit because I knew it was mine. So we get to the junction, started to turn, and he just kind of imploded, just kind of got jelly legs. He sat down, he hunched forward, and just, he went kind of flaccid, just loose and limp. I think he just thought maybe I'd leave him. I might not have seen him sit down and just totally give up. When I saw this, I scolded him. I said, no, you know, we've got the toughest to go right now. So, you know, you got to really suck it up and hang in there. And as I told him, I said, I want you, you know, right on my, my ass, I'll say it. I said, because I can't always see you, but uh, you've got to be there. You've got to help me now too. You know, we're in this together. We're a team and that's what teams do. So slowly, he just looked at me with eyes that were still kind of glazed, but he, he was going through the motions. Some of the most treacherous terrain was still in front of them. Pam worried about John's flat shoes as they traversed across a ravine. So I tried to stomp my feet to give him some grip. And there's a lot of gnarly boulders in there that you could put your foot down in and twist, break any part of your body. So it, it was a little touch and go. So I went slow and eventually we get down to a more firm, solid trail. We finally get to actual low tree line. And I think he knew that we're gonna make it. And he picked the pace up a little bit was still just silent other than a few little hints here and there that he'd, you know, like borrowed this car. He wanted to just go on a hike, one last one before the big snow season. And I just stopped and looked at him at one point and I said, didn't you think to stop in the Cog Railway and check the weather? And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and um, stayed silent. So I just said, okay, it might've been wise and to bring more in your pack. Still trying to be gentle, but I was scolding him because I was frustrated. 
we still had, at this point, the final three miles to get down. So we just kept going down and I kept now and then singing and humming and tried asking him questions and he would either grunt or nothing. So I, I just didn't get a lot out of him. And I'm thinking, well, he's embarrassed, you know, that I found him this way. Around six o'clock, they made it to the parking lot. It was dark and the lot was empty. The four miles down, which would have normally taken Pam about two hours to descend, had taken them three times as long. When John opened the trunk of his car, Pam saw it was empty. No change of clothes, no food, and no water. I gave him some more of my food and um, just kind of waited till things thawed. So when John's clothes were soft enough, I said, you know, you've got a long drive off it, obviously, and I think we're both exhausted. So, you know, let's get going, be safe on the way home, pull over if you need to sleep or anything, because you're, you're still pretty out of it. You're lucid, uh, but you're weak uh, after the whole ordeal today. And he just kind of nodded and said, you know, thanks, got in his car and left. I just, stood there and I looked around at this dark parking lot, the dark howling mountains. And now I'm starting to chill because again, my adrenaline has tanked. And I just said, what the F just happened? When Pam got home that night, she composed an email to her friend, John Hansen, recounting the whole strange incident. By morning, the whole search and rescue team had caught wind of the story, and Pam's inbox was flooded with messages and questions from her colleagues. Had she felt prepared? What could they learn from this to incorporate in their training? But even as Pam debriefed the rescue with her team, she still couldn't understand what had led John into such a dangerous situation. So, a few days after that, I think it was on a Sunday, we all get an email from our chief, um, Alan Clark, from Pemi Valley Search and Rescue. And he said, this was waiting for me in the mail uh, the other morning. He says, you won't believe this. And he said it was postmarked from Portland, Maine. And that's how we all got to see the other part of what was going down on the mountain. Here is what the letter read. I hope this reaches the right group of rescuers. This is hard to do, but must try. Part of my therapy. I want to remain anonymous, but I was called John. On Sunday, October 17th, I went up my favorite trail, Jewel, to end my life. Weather was to be bad. Thought no one else would be there. I was dressed to go quickly. Next thing I knew, this lady was talking to me changing my clothes, talking to me, giving me food, talking to me, making me warmer. And she just kept talking and calling me John, and I let her. Finally learned her name was Pam. Conditions were horrible, and I said to leave me and get going, but she wouldn't. Got me up and had me stay right behind her, still talking. I followed, but I did think about running off. She couldn't see me. I wanted to only take my life, not anybody else. And I think she would have tried to find me. The entire time she treated me with care, compassion, authority, confidence, 
and the impression that I mattered. With all that has been going wrong in my life, I didn't matter to me, but I did to Pam. She probably thought I was the stupidest hiker dressed like I was, but I was never put down in any way. Chewed out, yes, in a kind way. Maybe I wasn't meant to die yet. I somehow still mattered in life. I became very embarrassed later and never really thanked her properly. If she's an example of your organization and professionalism, you must be the best group around. Please accept this small offer of appreciation for her effort to save me way beyond the limits of safety. No did not seem to be in her mind. I'm getting help with my mental needs. They will also help me find a job and I have temporary housing. I have a new direction, thanks to wonderful people like yourselves. I got your name from her pack patch and bumper sticker. My deepest thanks, John. It literally took me three tries to get through the letter um, because I kept crying. Later on, I looked at the situation in my mind again at how he was dressed and his vagueness, his demeanor, his car. It made sense. It added up. One person can make a difference. You may never know it. He didn't have to write that letter. He, John, helped us in ways I don't know if he'll ever realize uh, how much he helped us also. So he paid it forward in a way which just really warmed all our hearts. We have no idea who he is. Would I love to give him a hug? Yes, I would. Kudos to you. You really did suck it up and uh, reached out. And that takes a lot of courage. That's where it, it ended up with John from this rescuer's perspective. This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Garmin. Together, we bring you a bonus survival story from someone who made it out alive thanks to their Garmin InReach satellite device. Here's ultra runner and mountaineer Adam Campbell to share his story. My approach to, to mountain travel was sort of, I, I started out as an ultra runner and um, I was starting to move more and more into speed mountaineering. And so really trying to do like technical ridge link ups. And uh, there's an area in Canada called Rogers Pass, which is it's one of Canada's national parks. And uh, there's this one ridge traverse called the Horseshoe Traverse. And essentially, it's a link up of 14 peaks in the area. And you're traveling across glaciated terrain. I had two partners, very, very competent um, uh, mountain runners and climbers. And um, we, we were looking to try to do this big link up in a single push. So it was quite ambitious. So we were moving, you know, quite light and fast, uh, which has some inherent risks with it. Um, but we, we had all the right gear for the day. We had a, an in-reach with me, which in the ca uh, Canadian backcountry, we often don't have cell signal uh, where we are. So it's, uh, it's something that um, 
I carry with me, and especially the the new little mini, which which weighs nothing and it fits in a pack quite easily. And so uh, my two partners were moving a little bit faster than I was through the train, and honestly, my ego was taking a bit of a beating because I just wasn't feeling that good at the moment. And so I was kind of rushing a little bit to keep up with them. And so they moved through this this area, and when I got to it, I moved through exactly the same area they did, and I pulled on this block, and this this block the size of a small refrigerator essentially pulled out on me and uh, next thing i knew i was tumbling backwards down this series of uh, ledges yeah it was it was a really horrific feeling uh, cuz i was about 300 feet up at the time and i i remember falling backwards and seeing the the skyline behind me and it's it's all mountains there and just seeing these these peaks flipped upside down because i was tumbling backwards and thinking just how strange it was that that was probably the last thing I was ever going to see. You know, my head would hit, my feet would hit, and falling down these the series of ledges. And uh, next thing I knew, um, I wasn't moving anymore. And uh, I, I was face down, um, and all I could see was a pool of blood underneath me, and I was in a pile of scree. Luckily, I have two really competent partners with me. They were able to run down to me quite quickly. They they were convinced that they were coming to a body retrieval because of how far I fell and just how severe the terrain was. Because they saw me fall. They heard me scream and they watched me fall. But when they got down to me, I was actually able to talk to them. I was somewhat coherent. And uh, I was carrying the inReach in my pack. And so I told my, my one partner, Nick Elson, uh, where it was in my pack. And we deployed the inReach, which alerted the authorities. And then from there, Nick was able to go and actually um, connect with the search and rescue team to let them know exactly where we were. And so quite quickly, within half an hour, they, a helicopter had flown over us and had spotted us. And this helicopter evacuated me out of there and uh, flew me to uh, a major trauma center. And it turned out that I'd, I'd broken my T8 to T11 vertebra on my back. I'd sheared off the top of my iliac crest, which is the top of my hip bone. I had deep lacerations down to the bone across my body. Um, it, was, it was a really, really traumatic experience. I was suffering from a lot of blood loss. Um, and so if, if it hadn't, if they had rescuers hadn't come as quickly as they did, uh, if we hadn't been able to alert them as quickly as we did, and then it would have been a very different story for me. You need to align as many things as possible in your favor so that if things do go wrong, um, you've at least maximize your chance of survival. So basically, don't go into the backcountry anymore, especially around Canada, without having some form of communication. Um, so I know there's going to be cell signal in the area, and I'll have my phone with me. And if not, then we'll definitely have that in reach with me. It's one thing to travel light and fast in the mountains, and it feels really, really freeing. But uh, you also need to have the right amount of gear for when things go wrong, because things can and do go wrong. I'm Backpacker Skills Editor Zoe Gates, and here's a safety tip from Garmin. When traveling over talus, scree, or large boulders, stay nimble and alert, ready to leap away if a rock shifts beneath you. Test the stability of boulders with one foot or a trekking pole before putting your full weight on them. Avoid traveling over talus in wet or slippery conditions. This episode was produced by Zoe Gates, along with me, Louisa Albanese. Our story editor and sound designer was Andrew Mayers. Our assistant story editor is Tim Massa. Our scriptwriter is Casey Lyons. The letter was read by Shannon Davis. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Pam Bales and John, wherever you are, for sharing your stories and perspectives. 
Thank you to search and rescue teams everywhere for putting your lives on the line to save ours.